0: Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, and um, we're going to start in verse 4. We've been in the book of Mark since we uh, began in, in, uh, in January, and uh, we were in chapter 7 of Mark, and so we stopped in chapter 7 of Mark and talked about sin, We talked about sin for about four weeks and went through um, the evil within. And uh, I think it's really good for us to stop. It's, it's uh, fall, and um, we've experienced kind of a, a lot of growth over the last, over the summer and since we've began. So we want to share with you guys our vision. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at what's the vision of reality. And so I want to read to you from First Peter chapter 2, kind of set the tone for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I basically are, my hope today, my prayer today is that you would uh, fall in love with Jesus Today and then fall in love with Jesus' church today. I know there are some people that don't like Jesus' church. They're like, I like Jesus. His church is really screwed up. People are screwed up and they're mean and they're clickish and they just talk about sin all the time. And uh, that's not Jesus' church. And uh, I want to talk about what Jesus' church is, that we would, as His church, fall more in love with His church, but then also be purified as a church. So let's do that the next couple of weeks. So First Peter chapter two. And I'll read it, and then, um, then, I'll pray. Start in verse, start in verse four. As you come to Him, speaking of Jesus, as you come to Jesus as a living a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do but you speaking of the church are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his for God's own possession his special possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people of God, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would understand the weight of that, that we would know that we are that that sort of people, that once we were... um, Under your wrath, God. We were not your people, but because of Christ, now we are your people. I pray for those that are part of the church, that are part of uh, the people who have placed their hope and their trust in Jesus. I pray that today we would get your heart on the church. I pray that we would see that your church is being made pure, being made spotless. We're in that process, God, that we would love your church, Lord, because you love your church, I pray for those that are not a part of the church, that might have been coming or invited or something. I pray that they would see the beauty of your church. From the outside, I know in this nation, in this world, the church looks really, really messed up, God. You'd give us a clear perspective biblically of what you're doing in your church, and then specifically what you're doing in this church, in this city, in this time. We love you, God. I pray for those that have been hurt and damaged by the church. I know that there are many. And I pray, Christ, your reality, your comfort, your peace, your presence would soothe even the deepest wounds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we're going to start this series today on the basically the essence of the church and the vision of reality. And it's good for a church like us to stop for a bit and talk about our vision. We will be nine months old next week. Nine months we've been here as a church. Next, exciting? Yes, praise God! Oh yeah, someone clapped. Cool. We're really excited. Since January, we've uh, experienced a-, a lot of growth, and we've been very upfront about this way, way, way more than we thought. Um, and so, I think it's good for us to stop for a bit. And since we see all these new faces, especially since the fall, um, to talk about our vision and discuss what the heck are you doing here? Actually, we've gotten that question before. Several people have like walked up to us and grabbed us and like, what the heck is going on in here? Where do all these people come from and what the heck are you doing here? So I think it's good to start, That's actually the subtitle of the teaching. The title is, this is reality, and the subtitle is, what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> so we're looking at, this is reality. Actually, it's three parts. There's three values, things that we value the most as reality, and as we want to value as a church community are these three things, that we are theological, that we're missional, and that we're relational. Those are three big values that we have as a church. We are theological, we are missional, and we're relational. So I want to look at the theological part of it. Now, I hope that word doesn't scare you. We'll talk about what that word even means. In January, uh, myself and the other reality pastors got together in Los Angeles, for a couple of days, we met uh, once a week for like a month or so. We got together and we prayed, we studied for this series together uh, for about a month. And then they taught it in their churches, and I didn't because we just started uh, Reality San Francisco like a week before. And so we didn't think it was, it was good just to show up in San Francisco and go, hey, this is what we're about, this is our vision. We really wanted to establish this culture of Jesus. So we preached Jesus. We talked, we went through the, we've been going through the book of Mark. We will resume that in a couple of weeks. And we just kind of laid this foundation of who Christ is and what Christ has come to do. And now we think it's pretty wise to take two weeks and discuss uh, why we've even began this church, why we'll continue as a church to teach about and teach on Jesus, why we have worship at the end of the service, why we have a prayer team up here every week, why our worship team is not spotlit? why we don't have a giant band up here, why we preach on sin, where we came from, and who paid for all this. We'll talk about all of that. Now, we get these questions all the time, so we kind of wanted to answer them corporately. Now, this isn't like just information. I hope to, as we do this, I hope to give everybody in here a sense of what, what God has for His church globally. We're all a part of that, and then locally here in San Francisco. So, if we were in a relationship, I know that's a really weird sentence to start with, but if we were, you can call this, we are now defining our relationship. Now, I know that really freaks some of you guys out. You're like, okay, don't define this. This is actually a good thing. Um, I, I just don't want you to really define this right now. Can we just um, just keep this going? I show up, and then you talk, and I listen, and I go home, Good coffee, whatever. Um, let's not define this right now. Let's not mess this up. But I think it's really important for us to define what church is. It's important for us to define what the church is universally and what the church is locally. What is the essence of, and the nature of the church? And what is the vision of this church? So what is the essence and nature of the church globally, universally? And what is the vision of this church locally? And that's what we'll be looking at. The vision of reality and how we're shaped by what Jesus', what Jesus Jesus's church is universally. So we'll take a broad look at God's purpose for the church, then we'll also get very specific as to the vision that has shaped reality. So let's start here. What is the church? I mean, you're here, I'm here, you've come for different reasons. Maybe you're invited by somebody and so you showed up today, or you've been coming for a while due to a recommendation from a friend. Like I said, we never really advertised at all, so you're here because somebody brought you or because somebody told you about this. Or you've been showing up ever since, uh, about a year ago, we started, actually a year ago in October, last year, we started prayer meetings in a home in the Hayes Valley. We started praying for this church. Maybe you were a part of that. You heard about that and you showed up to that and you were, you've been coming that long. Maybe you just started thinking about God and have had this real spiritual deep hunger and you've never really been to church or been a part of a church community. We meet people like this all the time. So whatever reason, you're here now, and what is this? What is this gathering of people? What is the church? Now, the definition of the church, or what is the church, if we were going to ask that question, really depends on how you define the church, the church ideally and the church actually. See, the church ideally is something different than it is actually. The church ideally, the, the church ideally is a, the church of God. Church of God's called-out community made up of renewed, reborn, redeemed saints who live and serve and love and give all for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. That's the church, ideally. But actually, the church is you. And it's me. Just us. I mean, if you look around, I'm pretty messed up. And you're pretty messed up. We're all broken and weak, and we can't seem to pull it together, but we want Jesus to save us so bad. We want to experience the life of the transcendent God, but we have a hard time connecting that and making sense of that in our everyday life. So the church, at, the church ideally is like this great group of people who come in and love each other and give our money to each other and serve and, and love one another and sacrifice for each other, but it, actually it's just you and me going, I'm real screwed up. I'm walking in this building, and everybody better love me because I'm really messed up. And the person next to you is like, no, I'm really messed up. I'm way more messed up than you're messed up. And we all come in here, and that's the church actually. Now, the reason for the gap, this is huge. The reason for the gap between the ideal and the actual is that we're still in process. The church is still in process. We are not yet perfected. There is taking place in every Christian in this room a process that the Bible calls sanctification. If you place your hope and your trust in Jesus, that means sanctification is a word that means the Spirit of God is making those who have placed their trust in Jesus more like Jesus. And that's what's happening. So, conviction of sin is part of sanctification. Confession is part of sanctification. Sanctification. Prayer is a part of sanctification. Submission is a part of sanctification. Giving and serving is a part of sanctification. So, the reason if you walked in here today and you have noticed that this church is not the ideal church, it's because we're still being made more like Jesus. And this happens in the context of a community that Jesus calls the church. We are all together being made more like Christ. That's what the church is. So the reason why this church is still very screwed up, really, really screwed up, is because we are still in process of being made more like Jesus. But you know what we do? We confess, we pray, we submit, we give, we serve to be made more like Jesus. And that's our hope and that's our prayer. Nowhere in the Bible is the word church connected to a building, but rather something being built. So the church is not a building The church is always something that's being built. Jesus builds his church. This is not a building, but rather a people that God is building. This is what the New Testament writers later picked up on. Paul writes in Ephesians So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, this is not a building, these are people, people being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom, in, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we all get together, we all worship and Christ Im- like comes and dwells in the midst of us. We become a holy temple that God fits together. And then that God scatters out throughout the week into San Francisco in the Bay Area. That's the church. This is what the church is. We just read also in First Peter chapter two, that we are living stones being built up. So it stands that the church is not a building, but rather something that's being built. This is one of the reasons why we love that we don't own a building. We don't own this building. Partly because we can't afford to own a building in San Francisco. (laughs) As many of you guys that are renting know. Okay, And it is kind of a pain in the butt to set this up every week and break it down if you're part of our setup team and breakdown team. It's kind of a pain, but the reason why we love not owning a building right now, other than the fact that it's too expensive, is that we love what it communicates. We love that not owning, owning a building communicates that the Swedish hall is not the church. This hall becomes the church when you gather in it. This room is not the church. I've been in this room uh, in in midweek or Saturday night. This room is not the church. Maybe you've been to a concert in this building or downstairs. You're like, this is not the church. This is so different than Sunday mornings. The church happens when you gather in it and gather around Jesus worshiping Christ. Then this building becomes the church. We love what that communicates. The same thing happens in your community groups. The same thing happens in your home. The church is not a building. The church is you and the church is me. And this is what biblically the church is. If you grew up somewhere where you went to a church that had giant huge campus and and parking lots and like like Moses Four, that's where you park, like the Moses Four thing. And <laughs> like it's a parking lot I was in. And, and if you went to a church like that, like the church is that building. Now, it's not, they will even say that, that it's not the building. The church are people. The church is you and me as we gather. Also, in the New Testament, the word church is used in various kinds of churches. We see the word church used for a house church, a church within a city, a family or network of churches, and the church throughout the entire world universally. In Rome, in Corinth, there were these house churches. And also in Corinth and in Thessalonica, there were these city churches. And in the book of Acts, it talks about a region, a network, a family of churches. And then in Ephesians, it says that Christ loved the church universally and died for it. In the New Testament, also, it uses various metaphors for the church. The church is a building being built by God. God. The church is a family, the family of God. The church is a bride, the bride of Christ. The church is a body, the body of Christ where Christ is its head. What does that all mean today? Okay, so the church is a building, a body, a family, a bride. The church is different. House churches, big churches, small churches, network of churches. What does that all mean today? It means that the church was not our invention. We didn't make up the church. The church is not man's invention or the man's invention, capital T, capital M, to oppress people and to hold power over people. Some people believe that. Oh, the church was an invention of the man, trying to keep people down, trying to keep people power over people, It's just organization and system to suppress people and steal all of their money. That happens, but that is not the church. The church is not our invention. The church is God's creation. It's God's invention, and it's his special possession. That means we can't experiment on the church. I would not want you to experiment on my wife. She's my wife. And the way that we see the church is that this is God's church. We love every single person who walks through our doors, every single person who emails in for counseling, every single person who needs prayer, every single family that has, that has need in the church. Why? Because this is God's church. It's not our church. It's not my church at all. Even that language, we don't even like using that language. It's God's church, and we want to care for it like God's church, so we don't like try things out on you. We don't experiment on you because this is God's church. John Stott, a famous old a pastor in London, at All Souls Church. We were there when we went on our missions trip this last summer. He writes this in his book, The Living Church. I highly recommend that you read this book if you're into, if you want to know about the church. He writes this. We are not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, the unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of god it is not a divine afterthought it is not an accident of history on the contrary the church is god's new community for his purpose conceived in past eternity being worked out in history to be perfected in future eternity it's not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their our loneliness but rather to build his church That is, to call out of a people, out of the world, a people for his own glory. You see, Jesus could have been here today physically. He is with us, but he could be here today physically, leading us in organic groups of 12 people. Like there's people that go, well, I'm really into Jesus. I don't like his church at all. If Jesus was, you know, if he was doing ministry, Jesus could be, you gotta understand, he could still be here and leading the church in organic groups of 12, still walking on water, still healing, still doing everything we have been learning in the book of Mark or you know about Jesus, but that was not God's plan. God's plan was to send his son, Jesus, into the world to become God incarnate, to live the life that we should have lived with all of our temptations and all of our weakness, but without sin. To die the death that we all deserve to die in our place, than to rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, send the promised Holy Spirit. When Jesus, right before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where he was killed and buried and rose from the dead. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promised holy spirit because the holy spirit came down and he would come down and empower this group of people because before the holy spirit came upon these people they were just that a random group of people but when the holy spirit came upon them they became the church the god empowered church a saved and called out people, a gathered people around Jesus and then sent to scatter all over the world to embody the gospel and to proclaim the gospel, to live out the great commandment and the great commission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. That's the church. It's not man's invention, it's God's. So since it's not man's invention, what should it look like? What should the church look like? The church should not, the church should be a God-centered community. That's what the church should look like. That's the best definition I can give you of the church. The church is to be a God-centered community. This is not just in theory, but in practice. The people of God have always been a community centered around God. So we all, as a church, must center around God. In the Exodus redemption of the Old Testament, when God redeemed Israel from slavery and Egypt, remember, what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh. He said, go to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember why? Let my people go so that they may go up and worship me. God always calls out a people to be around him in worship, always. In the New Testament, the same thing happens. God calls out a people that they would be around Jesus and worship Christ. This is what always happens from the beginning to the end. If you go to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, as a people, you see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just Israel anymore, every tribe, every tongue, every nation around the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb that was slain for our redemption. Revelation chapter 7. This passage is awesome. This is a little glimpse on how it's all going to resolve. After this, I looked, John the Revelator, which is the raddest name given to any man. John the Revelator writes this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages. This is, you know, just everybody standing. Before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in our hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is why when we worship on Sundays, the thing that you probably hear most are voices. Voices. We love this, the acoustics of this room. What you hear probably most of all is voices. If the person next to you has a loud voice, you probably hear them. You hear us collectively singing. There's many times where the worship team will just stop strumming or whatever, back off the mic, and just voices. Why? The way that our story ends is us around the throne of God with our voices singing. It's not whatever worship leader up there leading worship. It's just all of us together worshiping, singing to God. That's what, that's the end of it. So the beginning of it starts when God calls a people out to worship him. The end of it is God calls a, a world out to worship him. And today as the church, we live in between these two times. We are a further fulfillment of the Old Testament assembly and a foretaste of our ultimate future when all things are made new and we're around the throne of God. We're in the middle. So what are we to be in the middle? A centered community around God. That is our whole purpose to center around God. So because we find the original design of God for his gathered people was sent to be centered around him, and the ultimate design of God for his gathered people is to be centered around him, today, as God's people, we place him in the center. We are a centered people, a people centered on and gathered around Jesus. That's what we endeavor to be. That's what we try to do every single Sunday, every single small group, every single thing that we do, we want Jesus to be the center. Because we endeavor as a community to be centered on Jesus and make our gatherings about him, there are certain things that are not in the center, okay? We don't want to be a church centered on an agenda. We won't be that agenda church, conservative or liberal, political or otherwise, where the church is centered around this one agenda, this one issue church and all of its biblical interpretation and application centers around this issue. You see this happen in the church all the time, and it's toxic, both conservatively and liberally, okay? And we, we all could make a million suggestions on, on these issues. Some of them are conservative. We will die on this hill. And all the interpretation, everything in the Bible centers around this one issue. Or the other side, it's all about this. And all the interpretation, everything centers around that issue. We are not an agenda-driven church. We center around Jesus. We don't want to be a church centered around people or a person either. We don't want to make this church about a pastor or a leader or a type of person or a type of demographic for that matter. I mean, we know we, we're in the context of San Francisco. We know that who, who we are. We know a certain type of person will come in here, but we're not trying to reach a certain type of person. This church is open to anybody, everybody. We're not trying to reach a certain type of person. We're trying to reach humanity, period. That's what we're trying to do. We don't want to make this church about us. That's why, I mean, we kind of overcorrected a little bit for the first four months. Tark and I never said each other's name from the stage, ever. So we'd go up, and then, like, I would go walk up, and he would never say my name. I would never say his name. And so, and our names weren't even on the website or anything. And I would walk up, somebody would walk up and, like, hi, I'm so i am hi, I'm Dave. They're like, oh, I didn't know your name. They never said your name. I'm like, I know we don't do that here, we don't say each other's names, because it's about Jesus, then it got really creepy after a while, for like four months, it was like, that's actually kind of creepy, like, we realized, we kind of overcorrect. we want this to be about Jesus so bad, like, I don't want, I was, when we started the church, I was on the floor, no lights, I'm just down there amongst the people, like, hey, idiot, no one can see your face, I'm like, who cares, it's about Jesus, you know, whatever, they're like, no, we, you're a communicator, they need to see your face, it's important, like whatever and I saw like I crawled up here this is where I'm at now we we, tr- we overcorrected so much because we want seriously to make this about Jesus we don't want this to make be about a person we don't want this to be even about a church we don't want this to be about reality that church with the weird name or whatever we don't want to be that we want to be a church where if somebody asks you who's the pastor of your church you're like Jesus you're like you're so that's so weird like what do you mean like, we want to be that sort of community. We really do. And so, we don't, what that means, too, is that we're not going to be centered around things like art or music or social issues or agendas or programs or et cetera. Those things are not going to be the center. Those things are important, a very important part of the church, but they are not paramount in the church. Jesus is paramount in the church. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The reason we don't want to be a centered community around anything else but God, because remember the essence of sin from the last five weeks of studying sin? The essence of sin is being anthropocentric, is being centered around something that's not God. In that section in Mark chapter 7, Jesus uses the word anthropos 11 times. That was the source of all of their problems, all of their sin. That's why they were inwardly bent, because they were anthropocentric. They were centered around humanity themselves. They interpret the Bible the way they wanted to, because it's about them and not God. And Jesus says you're you're bent inward toward yourself, and that's where all the sin comes from. So when we gather, it's not a, a, a building that makes us the church, nor is it just us gathering in a single location that makes us the church. What makes us the church is that when we gather, we gather around Jesus. That we're theocentric, we're centered around God. We're Christ-focused, Christ-centered, Christ-oriented. We want to be. Okay, I'm not saying that we are, this is what we want to be. So at reality, we endeavor to be a Jesus-centered theological community. We want to be. We endeavor. We're not perfect. We don't have it down at all. We're we make silly dumb mistakes all the time. We want to be a Jesus-centered community. And what that means is we really seek to study and experience the nature of God together. So, what that means is this, three things. We're a learning community, we're a praying community, and we're a worshiping community. We're a learning, praying, and worshiping community. When we gather, we will learn, we will pray, and we will worship. The reason why we're a learning community is because we can't assume that all of our thoughts about God are right. Now, we do that, though. We, we think that we are, we are right. Everyone in the world is wrong and sees things weird, and from a certain point of view, except for me. I see things right. The Bible might even have it wrong in certain places, according to us. We're like, oh, and the Bible, that, that part I think is wrong. Who thinks it's wrong? I think it's wrong. You think the Bible's wrong. And your authority comes from whom? Me. We do this with our friends. We do this with churches. Like, yeah, I like this church. I like that church. I like this scripture. I like that scripture. I like this teacher, that teacher. But you're the center. And you become the hermeneutic in which you interpret everything else in the world. What we want to do as a learning community is center around God. What he has to say. We have a need to be a learning community because our natural state is rebellion apart from God. And we need to center our lives around God. So this is why as a community, as a household of God, we study and learn about God and life from the Bible. Okay, now I know that might scare some of you. Like, whoa, you're one of those fanatical churches that believes in that old book. Think about it like this Jesus based everything on the Bible. Everything. His thinking was based on the Bible. His actions and heart were based on the Bible. His mind, will, and emotions were all based on the Bible. Jesus had this saying when he would, and you've probably heard this or if you read the Gospels, he had this saying where he would go around saying, It is written. Meaning he leans on the authority of the Bible. When something would come up against him, especially in the temptation of Jesus, his temptation with when Satan was tempting him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, he said this three different times. When a temptation come up, he would say, it is written. This was the final word for Jesus. God's word had supreme authority and the final say, no matter what the tradition said, no matter what the culture said, it's written. So it informed his mind. Even if his mind was like, well, I don't know. And he would just go, it is written. This is what the Bible says. It also informed his will. When Jesus fasted 40 days, in Matthew it says, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. The biggest understatement in the Bible, okay? He fasted 40 days, 40 nights, and he was hungry. Just in case you didn't know, when you actually, when you fast, there's a period of time when you lose, you're not hungry anymore. But right around day 30 into 40, your stomach starts eating itself, and you get, you, you become, you're literally starving to death. This is the point where Satan tempted him with bread. Turn that, you're the son of God, you could do anything. Turn that stone into bread and eat. And Jesus said, it is written. Now this didn't inform his mind, it informed his will. He wanted to eat, he was hungry, but it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was in some way being nourished and sustained by the word of God. And his emotions were informed by the Bible. The main fortification of his heart was the word of God. Even when Jesus was on the cross, he was quoting the Bible. On the cross, dying for our sin. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was completely centered on the scriptures. It informed everything. Now, some of you guys are going, well, some parts of the Bible I like, and some parts of the Bible I don't like. Some parts of, of the, are regressive, and some parts are oppressive. Some parts are outdated. Some parts we don't know really how to interpret them or if they should even be accepted. I would say this. You can't claim to follow Jesus and reject the basis of his whole life. When you begin to follow, one of the things on our website, it says Reality San Francisco, it says a community following Jesus, The little statement there. Because we follow Jesus, we study the Bible. When the church was birthed, it was birthed in a culture of learning. They got together and it says, and they studied the, this atmosphere of learning where they studied doctrine together. I mean, they all walked with Jesus. They got together and recalled his words and his teachings, and they wrestled with who Jesus was, and the two guys on the road to Emmaus, if you remember that story, in Luke, two guys on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus walked through all of the Old Testament and showed how he was in the Old Testament the whole time, they probably shared those sermons with them. There was a culture and atmosphere of learning, so we are a learning community. We learn in, on Sunday mornings, we learn from the Bible. Well, our community groups, we learn and discuss together the Bible. We hope that you own the Bible, that you read the Bible or have the Bible app on your phone or something, that you actually read it, that you wrestle with it, that you come to community groups with questions, that you come to us with questions. We want to learn this together with you. And so we are a learning community. Secondly, we're a praying community. Jesus said that his house, God's house, is to be a house of prayer. All of us have a learning disability when it comes to God. It's called our flesh. So you can hear a message from God's word and experience God in worship, and you might think it's good, but because of our learning disability, we forget it, we rebel against it, and we get lazy. That's naturally how it goes. So we have this genuine need to pray. We are a praying community. This is why we have prayer teams up front every single week. That's why we have carpets up front. We want you to have the freedom to respond in prayer and repentance, in adoration to God. We also believe that Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Like I said, I actually want you to say that to somebody. That would be really funny and cool. Jesus is the senior pastor of our church. What that means is this because he is, he's the chief shepherd. And it's through prayer that we submit ourselves, our opinions, our ideas to the chief shepherd and ask him to show us the way that we should go when we first started this church, when we were in the process of planting this church, we had no idea what we were going to do. We had no idea what we were doing. No one really knows what they're doing when they plant a church anyways, but we, really, we were really self-aware of the fact that we didn't know what we were doing. We knew it, I said it out loud all the time. So you're going to San Francisco, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm gonna do. See, I didn't go to a special college to learn how to plant a church in a city. I didn't take a personality or an aptitude test to see if San Francisco was a good fit for me and my wife. I didn't did any of that. The only thing I knew was this. I loved Jesus. I believed in the power of the gospel, and I knew that we were called to San Francisco. That's all I knew. Me and a group of people, we were called to the city. That's all that we knew. So what we did was this. Because we had no idea what to do, we brought, over the course of like a year and a half, groups of 100 people into the city to pray. That's it. To pray. And I was real adamant by saying, You, you don't get in the con- you don't pass out anything. You don't walk up to people and say, Hey, did you know that in six months we're going to start a, a church in the city and you should come? Do none of that. Before we talk to the city about Jesus, let's talk to Jesus about the city. And we went to the city and we just prayed, God, where do you want us to be? What neighborhood do you want us to be in? How do you want us to? To, to come into the city? What kind of attitude are we to have? What are we to be like? How does, how does who our DNA is as reality fit into San Francisco? How do we not like, come in here all proud, like we're this or that? How do we come in here humbly and serve? What do we do, God? In the Old Testament, there's a story of King Jehoshaphat. He was up against this giant army, and he didn't know what to do. And his prayer was our prayer. His prayer was this. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We could get in that sort of attitude at work. I know that some of you guys have these jobs that are way over your heads. And to compensate, you work 900 hours a week. It's so good to sometimes even to understand and to realize, I can't do this. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. And so we did. We had this, we set up these, we call them prayer tours. We just came and toured the city and prayed, and that's all we did. This year, in community groups, we're praying, That's what we're doing. Community groups, we're studying prayer. We want to be a community that prays for each other, that prays for the city. One of the things in our small group material that we read two weeks ago says, um, it's this, and I really love it. I want to read it. It says, the only factor that is always present in every revival is corporate, intense, prevailing prayer, not for personal needs, but for the presence and reality of God among his people. That's what we pray. I pray that for the church all the time. I hope that you start praying that for the church, not just this church, but the other churches in San Francisco, that the presence and the reality of God would be in that church. We are a praying community. And lastly and finally, we are a worshiping community. Bible teaches that we are to worship God with our whole lives. That's broad, but specifically we are to worship him when we gather. The people of God have done this since They were saved from slavery out of Egypt. As soon as the people of God got to the other side of the Red Sea on dry land, they sang. And this has been a part of God's people since the beginning. They're the people who have songs, that God gives them songs. This is the preeminent responsibility of the church to worship. Some people think it's to to evangelize. Some people think that the preeminent responsibility of the church is evangelism and mission, social or otherwise. And that's not true. See, evangelism mission is our duty to man. Worship is our duty to God. We have an obligation as people of God to worship God. And true worship is always a response to God revealing himself to us. Worship is always a response. God reveals himself to us, and then when we respond, this is always what happens. Something happens, and we're in awe, and we respond by being in awe. I mean, nothing says this more clearly than that double rainbow video that's been around forever. This guy is worshiping his guts out, more than I've seen anybody worship. The rainbow was revealed, and he worships. He just didn't read his Bible to know what it really meant. This is what God does. He reveals himself to us, and then we worship. This is always how it goes. And this is why we do worship at the end. This is why, since we started, I go, our church, this is not over. This is just beginning. We do a bulk of our worship at the end. We don't do one song, an exit song. I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm saying we don't do this. This is why. Worship's always a response. In the Scripture, when, some, when, when people worship God, it was a response to his character, who he was. It wasn't because of their circumstance. It was because of his character that they worshiped. And so we put worship at the end of our service. Why? So you can respond to the word of God. So you can really respond. You could search your own heart. What ways do I need to be made more like Christ? What ways do I need to be to repent, to turn to Christ? Or if you would never have before, to sit there and to go, what are they singing about? What's really going on? And we've seen through that, that people turn from themselves being theocentric or being anthropocentric to being a theocentric person through worship. See, because God never asks us to worship Him without also giving us reason to. God always gives us a reason to worship Him. Worship is always a response to God. Not a response to our circumstances, but a response to who He is. And so we do, we place worship, that's why we have carpets. We have these carpets up here, and this is why. The posture of prayer, as you read in Revelation, the posture of prayer that we will all end up in, all of us. We will all be together, Around the throne, on our faces, before God, we take that. Po- we live in the middle, so we take that posture now. We take that posture of repentance and confession and prayer and adoration to God, and so we kneel. So we give you space to do that. That's why we we don't we don't take communion as a church altogether because we want time for you to for confession and repentance, and so you examine your own heart. So there's no pressure when the plate passes, like, I have to take communion now. You, you come up as you're led, as you search your own heart, and you thank, you thank God. You thank Jesus for his body and his blood, and you take communion. We leave space and time for that because we believe during that time, as a community that worships, that God will work on our hearts. He will drive this deep into our hearts. And this is why worship is not entertainment. We're not trying to entertain you. First of all, that's futile. I mean, there's like six events going on in the city just today where there's amazing musicians. We are not trying to entertain you. We don't even think that's biblical. That's not even our call to entertain you. That's why we have no lights on the worship team, no big music that drowns out voices of God's people, no face-melting solos, nothing like that. We want this to be completely, completely non-entertaining not to where it's like this is horrible <laughs> we don't want to err on that side we don't want to be so it, it sucks so bad they're like oh my gosh i can't listen to this anymore but we don't want to be so good you're like i can't worship oh my gosh look at that guy look at that solo oh my you do want we don't want that either we want it to be purely around jesus and we're, we're, we're not to say that we won't have a band from time to time up here but that's not our goal our goal isn't going how do we get a band up there how do we get a band that rocks up there? We want a rocking band. No, we don't. We don't at all. We, we, don't, want, we don't want people even to, we want them to disappear. Oh, overcorre- here's another one of those overcorrection things. Two weeks ago, uh, Rachel, she's around here somewhere, she was singing for the first time up here. And right when she was done, um, Jason turned to her and I walked up here and Jason's like, Rachel, that was a good job. I didn't even know you were up here. And that at first sounds like an insult. But it's not because the whole goal, our whole goal of our worship team is to disappear. That's their, that's their goal. Like, if we can disappear and Christ can be exalted and people forget that, even, that there's even a band up there or anything, we've done our job. So it sounds a little, I was like, Jason, I mean, be nicer. And he was like, no, no, no what I meant was, we are talking about last night how we're supposed to disappear. I'm like, oh, overcorrection. I know that one. I know, that, I know how that goes. And that's what we really, as a, as a worshiping community, this is how we want to be. And so, we haven't had this happen at all yet, but if you walk up, you're like, listen, I play a mean whatever, and I need a, one of those lights on me, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna melt your face, okay, <laughs> pretty much. We'll, we'll say no thank you, um, we love you, and, um, and you could join us on the carpets as we worship Jesus. And that's, that's what we really wanna be about. We wanna be a worshiping, praying, learning community. And as we do, what happens as we do is we, we reorient ourselves around Jesus. Because naturally, we are messed up. We have messed up orientations. And we have messed up things that define us as people. And we want to be defined by people who are around Jesus. The church isn't perfect. We're not perfect. We're in process. All of us, myself, especially myself included, we're all being made more like Jesus. And so when we come together, we repent, we rejoice, we reorient ourselves around Christ. So as we do that, one good thing to, to think about as, and pray about as we're going into to worship now is in what ways do I need to reorient my life? If I've somehow crawled to the center of my own universe, how do I remove myself or remove whatever else that's there and put Jesus in the center? How do I make Jesus the center? And that first comes with the real self-awareness. You have to really search deep sometimes. We don't even know. We trick ourselves as we talked about last week. We have to really search deep. In what ways am I doing that? And then ask for forgiveness. Are there some things you're like, I need somebody to pray for me. I don't even know what it is. We have prayer teams that are available. Or pray for each other. Grab the person you came with and go, let's pray. We want to be that sort of community. So first and foremost, we want to be a theological, God-centered community. Let's do that now as we pray and reorient our lives around Jesus. God, we thank you. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you have taken our punishment, our shame upon the cross. And would you forgive us when we make church about so many other things? Would you forgive me even right now for making us sound elitist, even in the fact that we're not trying to be elitist? We're an elitist because we're not elitist. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. I don't want to sound that way, God. We want to be people, really, that are humble. We, we, thank, you for, um, we thank you for being here. And we pray, God, that we would turn our hearts towards you. Thank you that when we do, your word says, when we repent, times of refreshing come from the, from the presence of God. I ask you that you would bring that even right now. In Jesus' name, amen.